Welcome to Probably Science. I am Andy Wood, joined as always by Matt Kirshen. Hello. We're not in our normal spot. No. We're, we're away from Andy's patio. Miles away. Mile, literally 14 or 15 miles yeah. away. <laughs> A different <laughs> world. It's as far away as we've ever gone. Except for the time true. we did Portland. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true also, yeah. But Portland's another kind of Andy's patio. That's true also. <laughs> All these things. Matt's full of truth today. Uh, we are out in Pasadena. We're actually on the campus of Caltech. Yeah, we one are. Of, one of the greatest institutions of higher learning in, in the known universe, safe to say. <laughs> right? How much of the universe is wow. known? Who knows? The people here. That's, <laughs> That's who. <true. laughs> <laughs> That's who knows. Uh, we should, should we just get straight to explaining why we're here yes, and introducing our guests? This is, I was going to say the second time we've had scientists on. Uh, as opposed to comedian guests. Mm-hmm. But the first time we had was uh, Pete McGraw, who does the humor code, and he's a what, psychologist or something. This is the first time we've had proper scientists on. Who aren't <laughs> studying humor as Who their main work. Wait a yeah. minute. So we're here under false pretenses. <laughs> we were told this was a science show. It is a science show, but the usual way it runs Probably. is we have our comedian friends on <laughs> to go through the week's science news stories, and uh, sometimes they're more informed than other times. But we get through the stories no matter what. Um, but I'm excited because you guys actually have a science pedigree. We're joined by Crystal Dilworth and Alexander Lockwood. Hello. Caltech PhD <laughs> candidates who I believe, am I jinxing you if I say that you're going to finish your PhDs this summer? Is that bad? No, that has to happen. It has to happen. Okay, <laughs> okay. You legally happen. have to finish your degree. So yeah. soon, Dr. Dilworth and Dr. Lockwood. Oh my God. <laughs> That's not the first time you thought of that, is it? It just sounds weird coming out of somebody else's mouth out loud. You like it, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah come <laughs> give it to me. Give it Say to it me. again. <laughs> Dr. Dilworth, I presume. Mm. So, uh, yeah, you guys are actually studying science, and alliter- alliteratively so. Crystal, the chemist, and Alex, the astronomer. Yes. It's pretty <laughs> badass. Um, so how did you guys come to... Well, usually when you have our guests on from the world of comedy, we ask them what their science background is, and it just consists of what classes they failed in high school. Occasionally, people did more than just the basic requirements, but usually it's it's a very short discussion. But in this case, we could probably let it go for longer, because I want to hear the story of how both of you decided to make science your life's pursuit. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> is there a short version of that? I fell one day and hit my head. No. What did you like in high, if I met you in high school? What would you have told me you wanted to do? Um. Okay, we're just gonna be honest. Why would you be? Um, I would have told you that I wanted to be a dancer. Excellent. Yeah. And what sort of dance? I think that's true of most scientists, by the way. Right. Yeah. It's like it's a. They'd rather be dancing. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah clearly. <laughs> From what I've heard, most people in lab coats are, are wearing unitards underneath them. Is that true? Yes, we all have those bumper stickers, you know. Yeah. My yeah. other job is an exotic dancer. Yeah. <laughs> no, not, not that kind of dancing. Um, <laughs> For the record, no poles involved. So you were dancing a lot in high school. Were you also doing well in science classes or not back then? Were you just doing the, the requirements or were you like, I also think that I could be good at this. So I'm going to keep both of these going. What was your kind of... Well, Crystal has a confession. What? I'm not a scientist. No, 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 no. no. When she went to New York... Well, 
So I have kind of had a dual life my entire life. So I was a competitive gymnast and a dancer and at the same time was pursuing um, academics, I guess. So I've always kind of had those dual, like, you know, I call it two lives. So like, uh, you know, like Superman, like you have your one life, which and is you like the academic even... life and you get in your like little... And which of those two lives would you describe as the mild-mannered one? <laughs> I'm sorry, Who's what? Clark Kent. Uh, yeah, one has to be mild-mannered than the other. As a scientist, obviously that's why you put, you put on the glasses and you're unrecognizable because you're yeah. wearing glasses and you take them off and you're the dancer. No, actually, I think it's the other way around. I think that in the dance world, I am the quiet, nerdy, intellectual sort of thinking dancer. You're the thinking man's dancer. Right. And then in the science world, I'm the flamboyant, loud, obnoxious sort of... Right uncontrolled force of energy that yeah people prefer not to deal with yeah the standard is so much lower for being an extrovert (laughs) when it comes to the science no it really is in my engineering making eye contact i was like the loose cannon in engineering (laughs) i was the madman right like i was at some math competition uh in iowa city and I remember uh, at first of all, this is super nerdy that I was doing this, but I was no, like, I love it. I'm into it. I was, no, I was, Ma- anything the, that starts with a math competition. The math competition Keep isn't talking. the nerdy part. I was juggling. <laughs> I was juggling uh, Wait, and juggling at a math competition. Yeah. So, but the juggling part, like the other teachers and students thought, was like super cool that I was doing. And it's not cool <laughs> at all. It's really uncool. Um, but that, that's all it takes to be the wild man at the math at the math competition. Is the, he's the guy who can juggle. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, so you were the dancing scientist. Yes, so obviously I've always the, been the dancing scientist. The most outgoing of your class. Um, so then when did you actually decide that, that science was going to be the thing that paid the bills? And you're gonna um, When my father time? told me that I would major in science or he wouldn't pay my bills. Ah, that's a very good reason. Wait, wait, yeah. we need to go. We need to jump ahead then to New York. Well, so I got a full scholarship to the Ailey School, which is a fairly famous modern dance school in New York Alvin? City. Alvin Ailey. Or is that there we go. Okay. Yeah. Of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. It's been a while since I saw this, but is this just the plot of Flashdance? Yes. It's exactly <laughs> the plot of Flashdance. Thank you. up and pulls the cord. Yeah. Um, and I had two options. I could go to UCSD and get a bachelor's degree in something uh, meaningful. M- not my word, but mm-hmm. yes. you know, uh, or I could run away to New York and um, join the circus. Also, not my words. And I chose the comfortable route of having a roof over my head and meals that were warm and paid for, and, paid and, and having something to fall back on. Um, it's very responsible of you. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like if I was really meant to be an artist, then uh, risking all for my art and suffering in a cardboard box under a bridge in Central Park was there would have been the way to do it. But yeah. I guess a comfortable suburban child that I was you could have been doing equations on the street. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> we'll math for food. Yeah, we'll math for food. <laughs> doing other people's homework, but I guess I feel the same way about comedy, sort of that I have. I had my feet in both worlds for a little while and it just never seemed appealing to have to be the starving artist thing never appealed to me. Choosing one thing sucks. Yeah, it really does. I went to UCSD. The the deal that I made with my father was that in exchange for doing what he wanted me to do and getting my bachelor's degree, he would let me attend the Ailey School every summer. Mm-hmm. So I did all my summer program. Uh, so still dancing at the Ailey School. So I didn't really have to choose. But then at the end, when I got my bachelor's degree, you know, the end of my father's first one's free program, like your first degree is free. And then after that, you're on your own. Uh-huh. Um, I decided to move to New York to really try this dance thing. And I thought that being just a dancer would be enough. Mm -hmm. But I found that being talked at like a 19 year old that 
you know, just came from high school and didn't know how to handle themselves and didn't know anything beyond dancing didn't appeal to me as, you know, a 22 year old with a bachelor's degree in biochemistry. I didn't really like being talked down to people that didn't have the same education as I did. Um, so they weren't I, trying to they weren't trying to school you on biochemistry. I would hope. Oh, they? actually, that did happen. <laughs> yeah, I had one dance teacher that was talking before Thanksgiving break about, oh, don't eat too much turkey because you know it's in turkey. The tryptophan is this amino acid, and it'll make you sleepy. You have to eat five turkeys in order to raise <laughs> your tryptophan levels to the point where it will induce sleep. Like, That's good to know. I never knew that. That's... Nobody is going to eat five turkeys. No dancer is going to sit down and eat five <laughs> turkeys themselves. Like that's not going to happen. And it was just like that sounds kind of close-minded of you. Small but okay. ins- <laughs> Well, maybe. But you know, things like that really started to get to me. So I started to um, skip my ballet class and take the train uptown to Columbia. So I was attending the chemistry department seminars uh-huh. at Columbia. Just auditing these classes. Yeah, you or... know, like playing hooky from dance school and going up to and go listen. <laughs> Do lectures on. Okay, I'm going to revise now. This is the opposite of the bottle flash dance. <laughs> yeah, yes, I think it is. Right. Yeah. And so there was a, there was one point on the train when I I realized that maybe I should pay attention to my shift in priorities. And yeah. I had a whole bunch of friends in San Diego that were in graduate school and that were pursuing PhDs. So I kind of thought that was the other option. Like your only two options in life. Everyone's were a dancer, or professional a, dancer, yeah. or Broadway. You know that was your goal. Or Broadway or Juilliard or PhDs. Yeah, not scientists, but PhDs. I. You, I get, you know, you're in academia for so long, you you get the impression that every single person in the world is either pursuing a PhD or has a PhD. <laughs> Which is probably, and, uh, sorry, what are you saying? No, but to not have one, right? It's like not it's having a, a high school thing. diploma, like in the real world, but, but you, you forget that there's a real world that exists, that right? That is it's, where like all of my, I think we might have talked about this before on the show, but it's just all of my best friends at university from my undergraduate degree are like, are scientists or all PhDs in something. I, I was at a friend's. Wow. I was at a friend's wedding a few years ago, and we were just got. We were at breakfast on the morning of the wedding. We all got some cottage next to the place, and we were just going around. And I was going, "Oh, okay." So there's Doctor James who does lasers. Doctor Anna who does it like insects. Emma's cancer. Uh, Fred isn't a PhD, but he does some computer stuff for the government that he's not allowed to tell us about. Richard's not a scientist. Yeah, Richard's not a scientist, but he's teaching like he's a professor of classical history and then i'm the clown like it was just like it was like cancer insects lasers computers greeks me (laughs) right so it never occurred to me that i could take my bachelor's degree and just go and get a job i thought that the only next step was grad school naturally which is starting to become the case. I mean, even bachelor's degrees these days are becoming... A dime a dozen. Sort of. Yeah, not, but not to discourage everybody listening who's pursuing a... No, you know, but they're great if you, you want to do the same thing over and over again and do it well. Yeah, yeah. Then, you know, that's all you need. But my particular temperament, I don't think would have been satisfied with being told what to do every day. So... You want to be the best. You want to be I doctor? I think P- PhD, PhD will work like for me. More. Excellent. And then what's yeah. your plan after you finish it? Yeah, uh-huh. So I'm going to get a PhD... And and then, and then you'll have a PhD. And then I will have a PhD. <laughs> Excellent. So and I'll just go around putting doctor on everything with my name on it for a I while. I heard if you do that on your credit card, you get like super legit cred. Like, <laughs> like, if like you buy a drink on an airplane with a doctor card, you know, they're all of a sudden like, oh, well, I added an extra shot for you, doctor. Like seriously. Someone I know, um, if, he's, a, he's a comic. Uh, his name's Russell Kane. He's a comic in the UK. He's pretty well known as a stand-up. But he... Uh, 
he got into like some newspaper articles when he was a student. His undergraduate thesis, it was in some kind of sociology type thing. Mm-hmm. He changed his name uh, to, I think it was to Lord I think it was Lord Grenot or something like that I mean, he just made Lord his first name and so he had credit cards and checked into flights and hotels as Lord Grenot uh, and then are there, just are there lords anymore? I don't even oh, know oh yeah yeah, okay, yeah there, there are, are still lords okay. and ladies so they're official titles and some of them are hereditary and some of them are made but um but and then he just recorded how completely differently he was treated when he changed nothing else in his life other than the name that he had on his card wow and That's the name so he true. checked into hotels one under. it's kind of like getting tenure yeah. There was a penguin that was knighted in Denmark. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> I saw this on the internet today. Um, knighted, like, intentionally? Or was this a clerical error? <laughs> <laughs> or was it like I, a body-switching movie or something that happened? Because like, there was know, a thing on the visit to Antarctica. There was Have a... you ever been to Solvang? You know, anything happens in Denmark. Because the town of Hartlepool something. in the north of England, um, is nick- uh, the people of Hartlepool are nicknamed monkey hangers. Because of a story supposedly a couple of hundred years ago, when a monkey that that had prob- that had probably come from some shipwreck uh, appeared on the shore mm-hmm. and was hanged for being a French spy. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, was he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then no, it was <laughs> legit. It was fully legit. Yeah. Um, but all this talk of PhD just, I think, quite neatly segue into the other reason why you're on our show and why we know about you in the first place um, is you do um, both of you are involved in a series called PhD Comics, mm-hmm. and uh, so a web series, the PhD Tours, PhD Tours is the web series, right? Well, a subsidiary uh, of PhD but Comics. PhD Comics is a website that um, hosts a web comic that Jorge Cham. Uh, I guess he started developing as sort of a, a, a version of therapy um, when he was in grad school at Stanford many, many years ago, mm-hmm. and it uh, got picked up, and then with, when the internet became a thing, it went up on the web, and he has a huge academic following, and then after he made a movie based on his web series, which Alex and I were both in, uh, he started playing around with visual media and, you know, internet videos and that type of thing, so we have another website, which is PhD TV. And that's what Alex and I are on. And Alex has her own show, which is PhD Tours. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And Crystal is on a podcast as well called Audio Feed. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And you can watch uh, the trailer for that movie at phdmovie.com and stream it for just $5, it looks like. Right? Made by graduate students about graduate school for other graduate students. So, so that's, I know we be have, warned. I know, we, but I know we have legit scientist listeners because they write in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, by the way, we, sh- we should have, uh, housekeeping at the top of the show, we should have done this. Uh, oh, yeah. But we we had a couple of notes, and um, we always ask people to write emailing with corrections and clarifications, and uh, and we have a couple, and also we have someone to thank as well. We do indeed. We have a donor who goes by the name of. Let me find the email. Uh, Chris Lachendro, thank you very much for your donation. We appreciate it. That helps us uh, keep the lights on. It's keep- extremely kind. We we meant yeah. to we meant to thank you last week, and we completely forgot. But um. If anyone does want to donate to help uh, help keep this thing up and running, we have a little donation button on probablyscience.com. Uh, and Chris hit it and was kind enough to give us some money. So thank you very much, Chris. Yeah. Um, and if you, yeah, from now on, if you do that, we'll always mention you in the show. So just we totally that. will. Yeah. We, we, we apologize for <laughs> we apologize being a bit remiss on that. And, uh, and we had a clarification because we were talking last week about 3D printing. Um, and... Wondering about how how you can do parts that aren't actually connected to one another. Yes, right? this Wasn't is this we were confused about because three D printing the method the general method involves layering things one on top of another, and we we're like, how can you make parts 
where there will be a bit that doesn't have anything underneath it or doesn't have anything attached to it. And one... Uh, well, it has uh, to have something attached to it because otherwise gravity is... Uh, well, well that's, he- that's the way... Okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, he- here's, here's the cunning thing. Uh, because- Benjamin, Benjamin Royal wrote to us... And he uh, explained 3D printers also print a support material along with the material that the, that the part is made out of, and then the support material can dissolve in water after the part has been finished. So, so there's different That's substances. That's kind of awesome. That's yeah, a great it's, engineering It's incredibly solution. smart. So just to reiterate, what, what they have then is the, they have different materials that get built up, and one of them is water-soluble. Mm-hmm. So they'll make the whole thing and then dunk it in water, and some of it will dissolve away, leaving the gaps. So, like, simple gear trains or linkages could be prototyped without assembly and then just dissolved away and they're suddenly in working order. Which is which is really smart and hadn't occurred to me, but now I've been told it, it's glaringly obvious. <laughs> it's one of those, oh, of course that's how they could do you it. You could have uh, thought so of it. Mm-hmm. Nah. But uh, <laughs> I, I still don't understand how they could decide which material is happening at which point if it's just some uh, three-dimensional... Solid. Well, I'd imagine the same way just a, you know, a traditional color printer, like an inkjet printer, could decide this bit's red, this bit's blue, this bit's green. Oh, um, okay. I, w- I was thinking about the intersection of lasers technique, but that's a different... Is that the one no, that... No, that's might- a different... This would, this would be for the like standard technique where it's just layering things so up and... Dot matrix, but in a... Yeah, just moving fashion. slowly across okay. a thing, putting squirts of a, of a substance... And oh, changing so if it had something hanging, you'd need to have something underneath it to layer it on top of, but that something underneath could be water soluble. Exactly, and okay. then that just You're dissolves away. Or the other links in the, or the other links in the, the bits that aren't the links in the chain, or the bits that aren't the cogs, mm-hmm. right? Can then dissolve away and leave you with moving parts, uh, which it's is very cool, cool stuff. very smart. Yeah. Um, Alex, how did you get into science? <laughs> I don't even know this story. I assume it's exactly the opposite as mine. Um, I was not a famous amazing dancer who went to New York and had an epiphany. <laughs> oh my god, I don't remember. It wasn't really science. either. <laughs> um, I think my parents one day were like, oh, you should pursue this. And uh, and then I took, I mean, I always, I always found myself outside uh, looking up because that's just the very unnatural thing to do. And so that's what I did. Um, and Where did you grow up? Maryland. Um, so definitely still the um, suburban, you know, haze. Yeah, like I was going to say. I was going to say, you like, you, um, isn't it like the first time I went somewhere where you're properly in the middle of nowhere? Having I grew up on, in London as well, which is a similar, like, you, you ludicrous light pollution. Mm-hmm. You can't see, even on the clearest day, you can probably see a, a tenth of the number of stars you can see if you go out to the countryside. And the first time you, the first time you're properly in the middle of nowhere and you look up and you go, Oh, this is why people in the olden days were amazed. Yeah, yeah. right. This, this is, why... is why they started connecting the dots, literally, and making yeah. constellations and and, and, and stories, about and also why they believe everything. crazy stuff about what what this is. Yeah. Like, that. oh, this is why they believe like this is being dragged across here in a chariot, and this is. <laughs> no, and we I should mean, pray to that. Even if you, you know, even uh, I've been in that position. Like I was camping in the Rockies, and you know, camp, sleeping at twelve thousand feet, and it was bloody cold. At, you know, middle of July, and it was so cold up there. But there was nothing that could stop me from stepping outside and looking up at the Milky Way because you had the plethora of stars just pasted across the sky. You know, it was the best view I've ever gotten being at that altitude and and up at night. But even at Maryland, you know, I mean, we we had a little bit better than here in L.A., but still rubbish stars. You know, your basic constellations, Orion and the Big Dipper and whatnot. But if you really sort of 
let yourself, let your mind wander when you're looking up and think about, I mean, it, <laughs> it's like in Lion King when Pumbaa and Timon are looking up at the sky and like, oh, what are those? No, they must be fireflies. Oh, I think they're giant balls of gas. Like, ah, no, Pumbaa. <laughs> well, I mean, they are and they're millions of miles away. And just the, I don't know, the possibilities that that presented as opposed to the limitations um, I mean, I, I like being alive, but the limitations of being a human on Earth and what that presents, just the endless possibilities. Um, like possibilities of other life or of just different realities or what, what sort of what sort of possibilities intrigue you about it? I, I mean, I think the other life is out there. I, I will even go on the record and say that there has got to be that's, some other... That's official. Life. A scientist just told us <laughs> that on the show. That's um, official then. You, know, you can use this crazy thing called Drake's Equation, which is like has a bunch of multiplicative factors in it, and you get something like eight, eight other sources of life in the universe. But that's bogus. Whatever. We pretty much have figured out that there's about one planet for every star out there, mm-hmm. and just our galaxy alone has billions of stars. And there are billions of galaxies. So if you have billions and billions of planets, you're going to have some stage of life out there. And I'm going to say you're probably going to have some stage of evolved life out there. Mm-hmm. Um, that, um, like it's long been, like Drake's equation was a while ago. It's long been believed that there is some life out there statistically. But the fact, that fact that you just stated, the fact that there's approximately one planet per star on average, um, that's a fairly recent discovery, right? That's a fair. Mm-hmm. That's a very recent. That's only in the last few years that, mm-hmm. um, and that's partly, I believe, thanks to Kepler. Yes, which is, a, oh, which is the first story. Which is, um, I guess, we could just get into should, it. Should we just yeah. nose dive straight into this? Because uh, sort of a bad day to be talking about science with some scientists. Because I know just before the show, morning. Alex was talking about what? how. What? <laughs> you're because you are in the uh, astronomy or astrophysics department. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everyone's everyone's lost a friend today. Yeah, I, you know NASA is clinging to its last hope of, oh, it's not dead yet. Um, I think it's going to be like the bit the bit in the GoBots movie, which I'm sure you've all seen. <laughs> there was a GoBots movie. <laughs> yeah, there was. Oh my god! <laughs> and there was a very important scene where one of the GoBots, whose name I can't remember, is believed to be dead, and the little boy who's befriended him starts to walk away, and then there's a noise, and he's just standing on the table for some reason, and he's alive. So I. I'm, I really want to throw in a Star Trek Into Darkness spoiler here, but I won't. So. Oh, don't. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> Is the spoiler might... that there's GoBots in the movie? <laughs> oh, my God. If there's a GoBot cameo in Star Trek Into Darkness, that would make... There are tribbles. I'll say that. Awesome. Nice. Um, but yeah, we, so can't, we can't have spoilers. We got into a lot of trouble for some Breaking Bad spoilers a couple of years. Oh, a couple of oh years. it's such a pain in the ass to edit those out. Yeah, I had to... A few months ago. Too. Um, so if, if people don't, aren't aware of what this is, we're talking about the Kepler spacecraft, well, yeah, so the Kepler the telescope. Cre- yeah, the, the telescope rather than the human. The hu- yes, Johann Kepler has been dead for a little while. <laughs> and he's yeah. probably oh, not sorry. coming back. <laughs> but this was launched in 2009, Nine, and it was intended yeah. for a mission of seven and a half years or more, it looks like. I think it was initially um, uh, put out for five years. Okay. They guaranteed five years because... If you're looking for Earth-like planets around other stars, you need... Basically, when they do these detections, you need three consistent orbits to confirm a detection. So, so what you, is it they're actually looking for when you say three consistent orbits? So what Kepler does is they look at a very small field of the sky in the Cygnus constellation, 
and they look at the same field of sky for days and years on end, and they're monitoring 150,000 stars in this part of the sky, and they're looking at changes in the light from those stars. So um, they look at these stars, and for the most part, the light is constant, but if a planet happens to move in front of the star and block some of the star's light, called a transit, then the, the CCD, the instrument that is looking up at the sky, will register that as a decrease in the amount of starlight. Right. And when they notice that, then all of a sudden all the sensors go ping, 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 and they start looking at it more intensely. But basically, they are monitoring 150,000 stars constantly to try to find planets around them. So if you have a planet that is very close to its star and it's going around very fast, say... I mean, Mercury goes around every 88 days, which is the closest in our solar system, but we've found, we've found planets around other stars that go around every couple of days. Right. So if you have a planet that goes around every couple of days, well, then every couple of days you're going to see a decrease in the, in the starlight coming from this star, and that's an indication of a planet. Well, if you have something like the Earth going around a star, well, the Earth goes around the sun once a year. So in order to see the Earth go around once a year, several times, you need several years. And we, we say that we've solidified a detection when you have three consistent periods. So there's a consistent time between one dip in the starlight, two dip in the starlight, three dip in the starlight. Oh, because if it's this, exactly the same consistent time, then that means it's a regular orbit. So you go, bingo, we've got a planet. Exactly, because there's a lot of other effects that can... Cause uh, a flicker, but that flicker wouldn't be the consistent in, at a consistent interval. Exactly. That's really funny. It's like the exact same principle for when you're confirming a biological result. You need really? three. Yeah. Because oh. like one could just be experimenter error. Two, the second one could be the opposite of what you detected the first time. In what way? Like y- y- the protein is there. The protein isn't there. And then the third one, if the protein's there, then you'll say, okay, it's probably there. And if the, the third the tr- third time you need the same acid, the protein isn't there, you'd be like, oh, the first one was an accident. I must have spit in my sample or something. The statistical oh. chance of something happening. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, totally the same like same concept, but <laughs> again, not... Oh, Alex, <laughs> we always do this. <laughs> exactly the same and exactly different. Yes. So, so, but also, you'd have to have the orbit of the planet would have to be lined up with your view of the... So this is the thing is that, um, you know, this mission while incredibly uh sensitive and really really interesting because it's looking you know monitoring 150,000 stars simultaneously um it it is it's very rare this occurrence of being the perfect geometry so that the p- planet passes in front of the star mm-hmm. you know in regards to our line of sight yeah because presumably as and just said if if a, a sun uh, sorry a star out there could have could have 20 planets orbiting it but if the plane of orbit is is there and then we're looking at it from a right angle, mm-hmm. then you're just not going to see any change. Yeah. Absolutely. And there, I mean, so there are, are other ways of finding these exoplanets. Um, if, if it was exactly at a right angle, you'd use um, astrometry, which is basically looking at the star move in the plane of the sky. Um, and if it's some, some sort of angle, so not directly in front of the star and not directly at a right angle you can use the radial velocity technique, which detects shifts in the stellar lines. Um, As in, like, the gravity of the planet itself slightly affecting the position of the star? or is Exactly. That not- so if you have... I mean, so we don't think about it this way because the planets move around the sun is the way we think about it. But really, Jupiter also pulls a tug on the, on, on the sun. Mm-hmm. So Jupiter goes around at 13 kilometers per second or whatever, and, and the sun goes around in a little circle pulled by Jupiter. 
Mm-hmm. And right, yeah, because technically, when technically whatever the size of the things, like even a tiny, tiny satellite orbiting around a massive star, technically they're both orbiting around a shit. Yeah, around each other, the mutual center of mass. Exactly. I mean, Newton's law of gravity applies to everything. Right. So it's, like it's a, just like a hammer thrower spinning around. Like he's a little bit off of his center of rotation, and the hammer's farther out. Than that's exactly. Awesome. You have that to accommodate, exactly right? Yeah. If you're doing like a, you know, one of those things where you get yourself sick, where you're holding hands and you spin around in a circle. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. be a little. And that's off. what that's what everything does. It's just that the effect of a little planet on a massive star is so minimal compared to the effect of the massive mm-hmm. star on the little planet. Right. So exactly. So if we're trying to use that to find a small planet like the Earth, which is very small compared to its host star, you're not going to see a huge signature, and that's really hard to see that gravitational plug. But if you're but looking for Jupiter-type thing... If you're looking for Jupiter thing, it's much easier, which is why all of the first extrasolar planets we found have been called hot Jupiters, which not only are they as big as Jupiter, but they're hot, which means they're close to their host star, which means um, if you're looking at Newton's gravitational law, you have... It's relative to the... the it's proportional to the masses of the objects. So the bigger the mass of the planet, the more of a tug. But it's also uh, inversely proportional to the square of the radii. So, so the, the farther, nearer that... Yeah, the nearer it is, the also the stronger the signal. So if you've got a huge planet that's really, that's really close to the star, it's going to have quite a significant effect on the orbit. Right, right. They're both going to be pulling on each other very strongly. And so most of the planets we found have been called hot Jupiters. But with Kepler, because you're seeing this decrease in the starlight and relatively, and that has to do with the radii of the star and the planet. And actually, if you put the sun or the earth against the sun, it blocks, its radius is about uh, a hundredth of the sun's. And so relatively, the proportional radii or the proportional areas, excuse me, is like 10 to the four. It's a part in 10 to the four. If you, if you put the earth in front of the sun, it blocks out one ten thousandth of the starlight. Right. But the sensitivity of Kepler could detect that. Wow. So, well, we couldn't maybe detect the movement of the sun. We can detect the decrease in the sunlight from an Earth, which is why Kepler was so amazing, is because it was looking for Earth. So, no more need for and hot it was, Jupiters. It, was it the best? Exactly. Was it the best telescope that we have out in space right now? Or I don't know how many things we have that are still functional right now that are. We have uh, Hubble's not Hubble's done, right? Hubble is still out there. It's oh, still it is. chugging okay. along. Um, excuse me. We've reached a lot of the. I mean, we've, we've done most of the, the novel science that we can think of with Hubble, mm-hmm. but leave it to people to figure out. And Hubble's still taking do. pretty pictures. Hubble is taking pretty pictures. And honestly, that is the number one incentive. Like, it inspires people nationwide. And so I have to say that funding to Hubble and Spitzer and all of the other public outreach programs in NASA should not be cut. That's being Anyways. proposed, though, I'm sure. As <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is. No, it, it's already happened. The, the, oh, oh, okay. the, the NASA's, uh, the yeah, president's budget for 2014 has completely cut public outreach in the National Scientific Foundation. I and really don't understand that because the White House priorities for focusing on STEM education for, you know, youth, I guess, there's, they're putting so much attention and so much money into doing that. You know, they have these new programs and women in science and promoting girls and math and STEM is such a big thing. But then on the other hand, like where are they getting their inspiration from? Yeah, and it is incredibly short sighted. Whenever they go like, what's the, what's this giving us? Well, this is giving you thousands of new scientists and engineers who are going to make products. It's giving you cell phones. Where did cell phones come from? They came from the original satellites that were launched in the fifties and sixties. That's where cell phone technology has come from. 
if you guys want your iPhones, you need to keep supporting. Basically, <laughs> that's the best research. argument right. for space. Uh, and and the Apollo program that there's so many hundreds of spin-offs technologically from that race to put people on the moon. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. I mean, we're not even going to defense, but I mean that's hugely. I mean, look at the, you know, uh, they uh, so scientists found this really interesting. Scientists mapped the spherical harmonics of the Earth, which is basically the shape of the Earth. Um, so like a, a spherical harmonic is basically just describing how bulged in different places the Earth is. Scientists have done that to me. <laughs> <laughs> he Did, said he was a scientist. <laughs> he was wearing a white coat. Was he measure, measuring your bulge? He was, it was, an, he was one of those alleyway scientists that... <laughs> That they have these days, you know those. They do. Those they alleyway do. Scientists they wear a white coat. Yeah, kind of maniacal laughter. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you know. Did Syringes, you pay him? I would be in kind. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, <laughs> anyway, so they so like almost a hundred years ago, they were measuring the spherical harmonics of the, earth, the exact shape of the Earth mm-hmm. down to you know a hundred figures or whatever in this equation, and. Science was commandeered. They were stopped from from publishing their results by the government because the U.S. government wanted the shape of the Earth perfectly so they could refine the gravity to do their missiles. And so I think it was during World War II, maybe it was the Cold War, the U.S. had the upper hand on the enemy because they had a better shape of the Earth from science. So using the shape of the Earth, they could align the GPS of their missiles that much more carefully. And so they got within, you know, maybe 50 meters or something, as opposed to the enemy, who didn't have the better. But science was wow. just directly So the directly Russians were still like, I'm pretty sure it's a triangle. <laughs> pretty sure. I mean, the, 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 you know, the Russians were like, oh, Idaho, you know, the whole state, maybe anywhere in it, we can just... So these tiny... I, I'm just fascinated that those little discrepancies in the... the the irregular the, the bulges the harmonics would actually affect local gravity that much that it would change the path of a missile like that's, absolutely absolutely wow. i mean this is you know if you're talking about trying to path something you know hundreds of kilometers yeah. and get it into several meters of range listen hey let's look this topog- fancy talk let's t- feet and miles what are we talking about here what is kilometers, <laughs> i mean if you want to shoot something from new york to chicago now we're talking okay. you know hey, and then you really want to actually you know you want to get it into that bean structure in chicago okay yeah, yeah. you're gonna need to Which know you're not allowed to many... take pictures of it's not uh isn't that true really for a while i thought Everyone it was the artist claimed terrible... rights to it whatever anyway oh I actually I like that place in Chicago. I've only been there once, but I really enjoyed it. I've never seen it. Anyway, so you want to fly something from New York to Chicago? From New York to Chicago, man. Um, you got to know exactly, you know, how big is that beam structure? How many buildings are there? What kind of mountains are up in, you know, the middle of God knows where Pennsylvania mm-hmm. that are that are obstructing your gravity? I mean, because that's exactly what you know is going to affect the flight plan of this of this trajectory. It just missile. never occurred to me. It never occurred to me that was part of the thing. One of the things you had to take into account with flying things. That's. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just it. It goes back to why do we use science? You never know. You never know what's going to come out of it. Yeah. You know, missiles, iPhones. Well, it's not just science. It's basic research, right? Mm-hmm. It's really what you're talking about. Because mm-hmm. I read an article about Canada's new approach to. Uh, research in their country and they, they want it to be entirely driven by only things that are commercial. So if it's not... I read that exact same thing and that sounds terrible. Isn't it scary? How do you justify... Firstly, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible precedent to set anyway for research in general, but also 
how do you know? Like, how do you, how do you know what's going to be a million, like what's going to be a billion dollar thing? How do you know this thing that will eventually become Teflon is going to be, is not going to be worth a lot most more? Most of science's, um, like most amazing contributions to our daily life were mistakes or absolutely. Or <laughs> I mean, that or was just... Alex's TED talk, right? Her, <laughs> she did an entire TEDx youth talk on mistakes in science and right. how that actually is. Or just developed for good. Uh, by the way, both of you have done, both of them have done TED Talks, which I recommend you look up online. Uh, but, um, but yeah, uh, you either from mistakes or from just generally adding to the mass of knowledge. Just for the... Just coincidental sh- things. Just for happen. the, mm-hmm. yeah, for the sheer usefulness and importance of adding to the knowledge of the world. Oh, even without an application. Yeah, yeah and, and then eventually yeah. someone from a completely different branch might go, well, hang on, I need, I need this kind of thing. Oh, someone here has done the research. Yeah. Some of which right. I can you take never know all- what you're studying is going to apply to another field completely. You know, yeah. your your chemistry problem may not solve a problem in chemistry, but it might solve a biology or you know, physics, or you know, even I mean, even a literature problem if you're trying to you know put two and two together and connect characters. I don't you know. Right. I mean, you're working in a neuro lab like I am, and you're doing basic research on electrophysiology, which is measuring small current or voltage changes in individual cells, and that doesn't really seem like it's relevant to anything. But then when you think about treatments for neurodegenerative diseases or Parkinson's disease, and you talk about deep brain stimulation, you're Mm -hmm. basically sticking a giant electrode into somebody's brain and giving electrical impulses at a certain frequency, and that's actually improving symptoms for this disease. and. How did that? How did we decide to just stick an electrode in a person's brain? Well, right. we went back many, many steps, and we did that on a single cell. And people like your lab, even if you're not directly working on this particular cure for the thing, you're generating data that the people who are working on it can then take and use. And exactly. Add to their information. Um, there is a story that we found in this week's news that does that. I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if we even told you about this one, but um, it's a new scientist, and it's titled "Zap the Brain with Electricity to Speed Up Mental Math." Uh, I put the plural on there because it was a New Scientist article and that's a British publication. Maths. <laughs> Maths. Uh, it's like Harry Potter. And it starts off, are you bad at sums? Well, I don't, <laughs> I don't call them that, so I probably am. Yeah. I don't, oh, yeah. This does, f- I mean, this article does feel like those people in the mall who give you a power balance bracelet. Like, it feels <laughs> yeah. like exactly yeah. this... This does Which, f- by the way, Matt has tried to. Uh, has I tried got into to- such a big argument with one of those guys, and I, I, I call out their tricks. I yeah. should have just walked away, but I couldn't. I couldn't. Someday not- you just need to fight. It's such nonsense. Like if you ever are, if you do ever see, I don't think they're even allowed to sell the power and balance ones because they've been done by the trades description people. But now they, yeah. there's other one. Anyone trying to sell you a rubber band that they claim make you balance better, <laughs> just be aware that they'll push you directly down with the thing on and down and across without the thing on. And you will be less stable. So call them out on that next time I try and do that. Um, S-A-M-H-O-P. But this story here, um, from, uh, I mean, this is at Oxford University, so, and I'm guessing it's actually in the university itself, it's not just, like, someone in a shop outside the university... (laughs) In 2010, I'm near Oxford right now, and the studies of they're shocking your brain for maths. They show one of those like terrible experiments that they conducted in the 40s, where you know there's so many ethical problems. So they they found they showed that a technique called transcranial direct current stimulation 
could help people to learn and process symbols representing numbers. Uh, now his team has shown that a similar procedure can help people improve their mental arithmetic, and crucially, the effects are long-lasting. This non-invasive procedure could help children with learning difficulties or be used in the rehabilitation of people after a stroke. It may even be able to help other people improve their mental athleticism. That really sounds like shock therapy to me. Kind of well, okay, so I'm what's not... six plus two? What's six plus two? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you really do learn your sums pretty quickly. Um, so they... Here's what it's called. Transcranial random noise stimulation, uh, TRNS, in which electrodes placed on the surface of the scalp deliver a fluctuating electric signal to specific regions of the brain, exciting the neurons. In this case, the electrodes are placed over the volu- uh, volunteer's prefrontal cortex... An, adam- an area of the brain involved in performing mental arithmetic. Uh, they gave one team of um, 25 people TRNS, and they gave a second group of 26 sham treatment. They wore the electrodes, but no current was passed through. Both groups were initially equally fast, but after five consecutive sessions, each lasting about 40 minutes, the people given the real TRNS significantly improved their ability to do mental arithmetic. They were twice as fast at doing the actual calculations, and their rate of improvement was twice that of the other group. That's a pretty huge... Which is immense. And yeah. the, the drill learning, the ability to recall arithmetical facts like multiplication tables, also improved fivefold in both measures. Uh, which is incredible. That to find out what was going on, the team measured the flow of oxygen in the brain during the tasks. They did this using near-infrared spectroscopy. hey this- hey <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> uh, that's what you do with that's stars, exactly right? exactly what I do. Wow. Uh, in this case, it apparently involves shining a non-invasive infrared light into the brain and measuring changes in the absorption which corresponds to the change in oxygen concentration. Which are basically just... Basically what they're doing is stimulating the brain to a level um, with... I mean, it's random noise, right? It's not... There's not a specific frequency. It's not a specific frequency, so that means they're not trying to isolate a certain brain region with the frequency of stimulation, just with the location of the stimulation, right? So they're saying, I think, that um, there's more blood... And more oxygen, more food yeah, going it, to that region of the brain that it that they are stimulating, and that is enhancing performance, right? So it's kind of the same reason you would rub like Ben Gay on your muscles if they were sore to bring blood to, to blood the region and oxygen to the region and help with that healing process. So if you kept going though, there has to be some line where you cross over into damaging tissue instead of just stimulating it, right? Like how do you know how much is an okay? Uh, yeah, Bengay's like deep heat, right? That's the yeah, icy hot, that sort of stuff. Right, because I once I once got some of that on my balls by accident, and that really hurts. And I'm wondering yeah. that whether, sounds like a story overstimulation. Yeah. So I'm wondering I, whether that's the equivalent. Too. You, go, you tell your story, I'll tell my story. Well, I'm just that's pretty much all <laughs> of my story. There's a reason they call it Bengay. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this seems like the same. Like, is there a brain version of this? Apparently, according to this article. Because it it comes... um, Earlier this year, apparently, they published work showing that although some brain stimulation can improve cognition, this comes at a cost to other cognitive functions. (laughs) In this new study, this group intended for... His group tested for unintended consequences on several non-mathematical tasks, uh, found no effect, positive or negative. So it's not to say there are no downfalls, but larger studies will be needed. Apparently, even six months later, the group... the non-control group were still 28% faster than the sham group. Than okay, the see, that's group. a big that's, deal because wh- because yeah. whether it's not, it's, you know, immediately we shock you, we're delivering more oxygen to your brain, maybe your brain functions better, but, you know, afterwards, whether You're or not... You're still 
better at mental arithmetic, which is, I mean, that's significant. It is. Yeah, that's, I'm kind of surprised they haven't started. This, this is only seems one. Too good to be true. This is only one study with 50 people in total. But um, well, I mean, the interesting thing is right that they they simulate the prefrontal cortex, so that's an area of the brain that's involved in like higher order processing. So like that. The voice that's telling you that's not a good idea. Mm. Don't don't do that. Don't take that fourth shot. That's your what voice. That okay. Well, some people have it. Others don't. <laughs> it's it's um different volumes depending on on who you are. But you know yeah. that's that's basically your your PFC your prefrontal your cortex. Super ego. But you would think that the ability to access those answers with that speed. So, like, after so much time has elapsed would be more hippocampal, which is in the middle of the brain, probably wouldn't be stimulated by this technique and is involved in memory and learning and memory specifically, Wait, both so of those the, processes. So that's surprising. The hippocampus that, is where what sort of work is done again? Learning and memory. Long-term storage of memory. Or so that would be more like, term. rather than doing a mental arithmetic, that would be more like where your multiplication tables are stored. Mm, sure. Yes. So not analyzing new information, but just recalling. And you're saying for this to have taken an effect after the fact, it had to have affected other parts of the brain, basically? I'm not necessarily just surprising that just by stimulating that, one part, that part of the part, yeah. they're seeing changes that I not, I mean, I'm not a learning and memory person, but I would, I would assume that there would be a hippocampal involvement in that. Hmm. So it's surprising. does hippocampus also have to do with like sex and urges and stuff? I think you're thinking of the hindbrain, darling. The lizard brain. <laughs> oh. Isn't that the, like, thyroid hippocampus or something? Isn't there some... It's in the... Never I'm completely off base. This is, like, a dozen years ago in school. You're getting the stink... I love this. <laughs> Scientists getting <laughs> catty at each other. This is great. Oh, I'm my gonna, God. I'm stick to galaxies. Like, I mean, okay, I don't study sexual stimulation, so I can't tell you for sure okay, that that's see, I, not I, I where it... Study, no, um, okay, then you tell me. That's where it starts? In the hippocampus? I'll tell oh, my you God. I wish this was a video podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Daggers, daggers. I'm going to step back and let them have it out. Go for it. (laughs) Anyways, I just wanted to talk about sex, but we're done. Okay, (laughs) no, and effectively change the subject. (laughs) Believe me, this is not this. This podcast can go whatever direction you want it to. This is definitely still the least sexual podcast we've had so far. I think. Wait, what is in charge of the? Because isn't there something that in charge of like. Like urges or like, well, you're talking about like where does the where does hormone synthesis happen in the like brain? the thyroid? Isn't that associated isn't with that the hippocampus? The that's not that's not your brain though. Pituitary? Pituitary no? gland? That? Isn't that that's in the hippocampus? Growth, that's right? where, I don't or something know. right in the middle of your brain? Okay, how am I looking this up on Google? Because I honestly Prefrontal, don't know. Occipital? It's no, no, none of What's those the, things. What does the amygdala do? Is that part of this? Or? That, that, Ooh, that's also fear. Amygdala. Fear. Okay, fear. Fear conditioning would be amygdala. What other parts do I have I heard of? Uh, Which bit of your brain is street smarts? <laughs> we, that would be your prefrontal cortex, probably. That's whatever scientists don't have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have big That's PFCs. the part that they, they cut out before you come to California. Uh, I'm Googling brain parts PFCs. right now. Is that the right way to do this? No, probably not. Um, brain parts. No, you're going to get flagged I, by I the FBI. I swear to God, that's a porn oh, okay. something. <laughs> Arousal. So your, your, field, your field of research is... <laughs> Zombie porn. Uh, is addiction, isn't it? Or addiction mechanisms. Yeah, addiction mechanisms. Nicotine specifically. Okay, five brain areas were found to be more active during the sexually explicit film. I don't think that's the right website. Wait, no, I, but sex is sex. Let's not discriminate. So what's the... Uh, okay. So the... What are the parts of the brain? The prefrontal cortex... I'm not. The there's many. The lower, there's there's, 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 there's a lot of Latin there. That's the cerebellum's like the bottom... 
chunky chunk. Temporal lobes, occipital lobes, parietal lobes. Parietal. Oh if you God. have a favorite part of the brain, listeners, uh, <laughs> write in to probablyscience at gmail.com or tweet us at probablyscience. Any neuroanatomist out there. Favorite bit of the brain. And if you've ever had electroshock therapy to your brain and you think it's made you smarter at math, yeah. I would really be interested in knowing I, I this. I want to read more about this, this bit that said the previous studies showed a decline in other bits of the brain because I don't know whether I'd... I don't know whether I'd want to be better at times tables if it meant that I couldn't then manage to find my mouth with food. Right, right. <laughs> or I'm just imagining a bunch of scientists getting excited because it like lowers people's ability to turn down advances from nerdy scientists. <laughs> they get better at math and they suddenly have bad judgment. Um, and they said the technique could potentially help rehabilitate people with stroke or help children learn. Um, Cohen Kadash said, we aim to start a study with children with numerical learning difficulties and we plan to extend it to other populations. So, yeah, this seems pretty promising. Twice, performing twice as well as a control group is remarkable. How is it going to help stroke victims? Well, I presume if uh, they're, they're thinking from the perspective of if you have a stroke, a certain amount of your brain is damaged and this technique seems to cause a greater rate of learning in the brain because once you've had a stroke, your brain has to relearn how to do certain actions. Mm-hmm. And this and relearning how to do certain actions is, I'd imagine, a similar mechanism to learning it in the first place. Hmm. Well, that actually could bring us, if we want to move on from this, we have another brain story. Is that too much brain talk in one episode? I don't know. I mean, we have a neuroscientist and an, as- <laughs> an astronomer. An astronomer. <laughs> okay, probably, too much brain talk? We could yeah. probably, like, I think it would be no bad thing to largely have neuroscience and astronomy stories. In that case, um, on Science Daily, we came across a story about how the brain rewired itself after damage or injury. Um, when the brain's primary learning center is damaged, complex new neural circuits arise to compensate for the lost functions, say life scientists from UCLA and Australia who have pinpointed the regions of the brain involved in creating those alternate pathways, which are often far from the damaged site. So is this anything that relates to... This is, again, this is probably not that directly related to what you study, Crystal, but um, is this anything that you consider within your field of expertise i mean no, i mean i'm a molecular neuroscientist so this is far from molecular changes for me but i think it, i'm not surprised by the idea that uh, this like neurocompensation happens but it's not through the same mechanisms right mm-hmm. so uh, areas of the brain uh, lose function and it, it learns to compensate but not through the same processes because you can really only have uh you know, new synapse forming and uh, new neurons growing in certain regions of the brain. Why the is, whole brain. Why is that? I mean, that's why, like, I don't know, my parents always told me, like, don't drink because you'll kill all your neurons and they don't grow back. Mm-hmm. That's only true for certain parts of the brain, right? I can't name all the ones that have, uh, you know, uh, stem, neuro, neuro stem cells that still differentiate into neurons, but... But there are there the are brain. known areas where this stuff never grows back and, and if it happens in this area, it will grow back? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Grow back, but not the same, right? Because throughout development, you're constantly training your brain. Like even before you're born, you're you know still like early s- stimuli that um, mm-hmm. are going and forming synapses in certain regions. So you're never gonna go through that process again. So it's really true that, for instance, like with language, you learn language um, when you're still developing. When your critical period is, hasn't closed yet, mm-hmm. um, you learn in a uh, in one way. And if you learn it as an adult, you learn a completely different way. And they've shown uh-huh. through like fMRI studies that you you access different parts of your brain if if you're being asked to speak in a different language. One that you learned as a child, you'll access a certain region, and one that you learned as an adult, you'll access another region. And is that because of of like st- I, 
forgive me, I know nothing about this. Is that because of, of stem cells getting permanently turned into things that they can't change from? Like, or, or what's different about being a child and versus being an adult as far as what's... So there's a region... There's only one thing that's different. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so there's... Spherical um, bulges? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. That is actually true. An interesting cake decoration. <laughs> interesting cake decoration? Yeah. Yeah, your your level of interest in cake decoration... Oh, yeah, it's tr- Yeah. ...changes drastically I don't really need age. any. My birthday's tomorrow. I think it's kind of du- bimodal. You know, to... as you, when you're a kid, you're really excited to have Elmo on your birthday cake, and then maybe at, like, 22, you're really interested in... Like, race car. And then... Mm-hmm. At 36, maybe you, uh... <laughs> what do I want on my birthday cake tomorrow? I don't know. Someone to pop out of yeah. the cake. <laughs> there we go. Happy <laughs> I think even as a kid, I would have wanted that, but just not for any sexual reasons. I just think I would have been delighted if a massive cake had, and like someone had popped out, but that person could have been dressed as goofy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, no, but then they, then you'd ruin the cake. That would that would be, That'd be devastating. devastating. They're never edible cakes. They're just cardboard covered in frosting, you guys. I hate yeah, to I hate to shatter anybody's illusions delicious. about cakes that ladies jump out of, but you're never going to eat that cake. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> if you were six years old, and instead of having a cake that you could shove your face into and yeah, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. crazy, or having you know a scantily clad or dressed as Goofy, whatever your preference, or both, come at <laughs> I do a scantily, scantily clad, clad Goofy. Just the ears, neck up Goofy, neck down bikini, <laughs> or party in the front. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> there must be some after hours bar near Disneyland where people who work there go do crazy stuff like that, right? Like there must be some place. Dude, Minnie Mouse is a freak. I'm sure. I'm sure. They kind of blow off steam. There's <laughs> a bit of me that still wants to bang Chip and Dale. <laughs> I you know, feel like there's they, another they story. Still professional wants... men who uh, will, will serve you for that called. Oh, the Chippendales. No, okay, I should rephrase that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wants to be with Chip and or Dale. Well, preferably both at the same time, is what you're saying. Side note, um, <laughs> uh, the Chippendales were... I think it was... Either the Chippendales were a very similar group. We were at the Edinburgh Festival a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, there was a group of us in the bar. And my then agent, uh, she was talking to one of them. And she said, oh, we're going to go and see your show tomorrow night. And, and I'm bringing my gay friend with me. And he and one of them said he won't like it. What? And she went, "What?" And he went, "I'm sorry. I'm. I just guarantee you, he won't like it. I wish that weren't the case. I would love gay people to enjoy our show as well, gay men to enjoy our show as well. But there's no cock, and they nah. just want cock. <laughs> like it's just that's hilarious. And he was dead on. He was dead on. Like I asked Hannah like two days later. He's like, "Yeah, she you know, was all right with it." <laughs> just so but do women even we have some women here uh male strippers is there any appeal because I, I thought purely it was purely like a novelty thing and like women are kind of laughing at it more than they're turned on by it and it's an excuse for them to get together and yell together or something i don't know i went to my first uh exotic show uh from my best friend's bachelorette a couple months ago and I didn't even know this actually happened where men dance and take off their shirts and whatnot. And it wasn't even a full strip. It was just down to, you know, the banana hammock or mm-hmm. whatever. And and that was plenty. That was absolutely plenty. Plenty as in any more would have been bad, but you liked what you got? Or even what you got was like, all right, this is silly. It and... was definitely silly. I mean, maybe uh, I could have... Well, I was pretty drunk, actually. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't even the problem. I, You know... 
girls really want a lot more of the uh, romancing than they do of the cock, to put it as in your words. <laughs> see, I, see, I'm sure that's um, not like I'm sure that's not a constant across the entire no, they gender, do, but but but, uh, but it does seem like from this from that dancer's experience, he was like, yeah, the women in the audience go for it, and the gay men in the audience. Well, that's the thing. Get I went frustrated. to a gay strip club. When did the when does the show start? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's that's the enough preamble. for the warm up. Right, he's still wearing clothes. What's going on here? I went to like a gay strip club once, and it was just a bunch of men hanging from bars, like poles that were hung around the the bar area, so you could walk up and get a drink and have junk in your face <laughs> as you're standing there, and it was just horrifying because the idea <laughs> and it's not, you know, it, it's one thing to. To, to, to like cock as a woman or whatever. But it's another thing to have random, not for you, cock, just flung in your face. <laughs> just willy I mean, not, not even women, for you. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you offer a woman a chocolate and you say, oh, look at this chocolate. It's so delicious. Look at the ganache on the top. Don't you want it? And But you're not actually giving it to her. So you're saying We're the gay chocolate are... that you can't eat is worth nothing. So the... <laughs> This is the exact same dilemma for males. I know this is like guys say about strip. I don't know, but I was going to say, like the you know the gay that gay strip club to you is like watching watching another woman plow through a box of chocolates (laughs) on a stage (laughs) while you're sat in the audience. That sounds (laughs) plow is an interesting choice of words, but. It sounds about what it sounds about what it is for guys too. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's just you're an exercise in frustration. But but still, I'm fine with that. Fine with, I'm still, fine with know. the situation where they're like, this isn't for you. I'm like, I'm aware of that, but yeah. <laughs> That's, well done. I don't done. understand lesbian porn. I do not understand it. Oh, it's two women. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I always wondered. Okay. <laughs> but they don't want you. So you, oh, you, you don't understand men's fascination with, with women who are lesbian. Yeah. yeah, it is sort of a silly, it's a weird thing. I don't really fully get i'm not just trying to like be like i'm not one of them but like yeah it doesn't do anything for me because in, in the real world uh lesbians yeah they have they have no interest in you and maybe the versions you see in i'm just happy that not. they found each other yeah so you i just feel enjoy good for their them. happiness if you want to watch their, them find each other i enjoy their happiness i i guess uh, maybe, i have enjoyed their happiness on many occasions and i will continue to enjoy their happiness maybe it speaks to some level of ability to like empathize versus be uh self-centered or something. I think that's it. I think I I'm know. just more empathetic yeah, than you. you're better than I am. You're not trying to inject yourself into the situation, no pun intended. You're just enjoying the two people are enjoying each other's company. So that's, I think what they're saying yeah. is that guys that like to watch lesbian porn are more in touch with their feelings. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're more empathetic, more they're sympathetic. They're something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's how I feel at the end of, say, like, When Harry Met Sally. I'm like, well, they're together no, now. Oh, yeah. They're together. Really? And, and then they're apart. Meg Ryan and, to- and Billy Crystal are equal to lesbian porn. <laughs> Pretty much. I... <laughs> Billy Crystal has consistently been one of my favorite lesbians over the years. <laughs> <laughs> and poor Meg Ryan with that plastic surgery. Oh. No, she's constantly Catwoman. I think that's awesome. <laughs> she gets to play Catwoman every day. She wakes up and she's already Catwoman. What happened? Plastic surgery. She got just the crazy Ooh. lip stuff and all the... She just looks like... To quote it's someone else's bit, it's Dana Gould's bit. Like w- Whenever women get that surgery, they don't ever look younger or more attractive. They all look like the same woman. And that woman is the woman from the band from the Muppets, Janice. Oh my God, Right? Yes. Yeah, they have the exact same lips, just the... Those uh, perfectly 
what, what would, what's that shape? Uh, cylindrical, I guess. Lips, just like fish. Li- whatever. Yeah, you get it. They're Janice. They Duck. all become Janice. But anyway, we, we, got, we got off track somehow talking about stripping. But I did. I did want to hear about like. So what? What is the change that happens from childhood to adulthood that makes your brain less malleable? So you're not born with your brain the way that you're going to have your brain mm-hmm. as you mature and grow up into the point where development sort of stops around. I would say probably myelination prefrontal cortex developments finish like around 18 I'll go out on a limb and, and say that mm-hmm. um, your brain is constantly changing and developing and there's certain uh, critical windows when uh, you you can af- before um, certain regions are completely developed that you can affect development so the most classic example of this is um, the like critical period for sight so if you cover one eye, you'll find that neurons that innervate the other eye, the one that's not been covered or ablated in some way, um, that that eye starts to map the entire portion of the brain that is set aside for, uh, you know, visual processing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And how young is that? Um, I think humans it ends around five or six. Wow. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and you can do that the other way, you know, cover the other eye and you see it, you know, just sort Encroaching of the, enner- the, the innervation kind of take over. This is a um, the cleanest example of this, you know, critical yeah. window. But the the same thing happens in, in other ways. And uh, there was a great talk um, be given by a professor at USC at the um, TEDx Youth event that Alex and I were at where it was her message was kind of like, well, parents, I know you're having a really hard time kind of understanding the decisions that your teenage children are making. But, you know, when you're asking them, like, are you stupid? Why would you do that? The answer is kind of, well, yeah, <laughs> because they're, they're physiologically. Stupid yeah, no, the, the prefrontal cortex, which we were talking about earlier, which is in charge of that higher order processing, that voice on your shoulder that's like that. That, that skateboard slide down can... that pole is not a good idea. Don't do that. Uh-huh. It's not fully developed. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, they might think that something is a really good idea, like taking your car and taking it around town. That might seem awesome yeah. to them. And that's the best decision that their kind, brain awesome. is capable of making. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. Right? So in some cases, you're actually asking them to be better than they really can be. Wow. But that's the role of a parent, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I guess how, how else do they, I mean, left to their own devices, does that... I would assume that, that that prefrontal cortex doesn't suddenly develop some magical judgment without learning, without having. I mean, so you have you to have teach. to have experiences. Yeah, yeah and it has to be. I'm saying, but also like it's not it's not useless for parents to try to impart wisdom upon them because eventually it will get through their dumb kid brains and form permanently into some sort of. Right, but just how many how many times do you have to learn that something's not a good idea? Yeah. Or be told that something's not a good idea, right? Like you can be told like that's hot, don't touch it. That's hot, don't touch it. But if you touch it and it's hot and it hurts, you're going to learn that a lot that's better. Happen faster. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's so. true. So then the, the sight thing is interesting because I thought I heard some, and I shouldn't just say I thought I heard some study one time, but I th- I'm pretty sure there was some case where uh, somebody was blind from birth and through some surgical procedure gained sight later on and they weren't blind because of any neurological problem, but I guess some actual problem with their eyes. So then even though they could physically see technically as well as anybody once they had this procedure, whatever it was like the brain had already like those pathways had been so firmly entrenched that it was a really disorient. Like it wasn't a positive experience for this person to be able to see because there was so much that wasn't, it didn't instantly make sense. Like depth, depth didn't make sense. And, and 
uh, even color. I, I don't know. Like, can you? Does any of that make sense to you as in terms of the things already being solidified and therefore like you wouldn't be able to just jump into being able to see like yeah, how you learn something or how that would develop right is constant innervation of a specific neuropathway. Mm-hmm. The more you use it, the stronger it gets, the more connection it connections it makes to itself and the more established that pathway is. It's just kind of like a, a backcountry road at the mm-hmm. beginning and then cars keep driving on it and eventually it turns into the 405. Um, and it's a very strong connection and a strong way to get information from one place to the next. Mm-hmm. The same thing happens with neurons. Um, but in, in certain regions of the brain, especially in development, there's a process called pruning, which is very strong connections that are made at the beginning of development. If they're not used, they start to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then they're not made anymore. So something like... They've gone all together. They could never be brought back, or it would just be really hard to? Um, that depends. That's a case-by-case yeah. basis. So that... That person that was born blind and became able to see later in life didn't have that um, the um, the training of those neural pathways that everybody else would at mm-hmm. a very young age while that critical period was open. Okay, so that's that's actually. Re- so cool I would love to be able to talk, like go and talk to her and be like okay so yeah, what I, do I you see or how I, was that because it was really yeah because the things you take for granted about the way you interpret what you see is uh, like I think faces like there's so, so much different in the way we process faces than other things yeah well there's a whole that, other brain it? region there's a whole other set of neurons that are just set aside for facial Oh, recognition really? mm-hmm. oh. and they've done um they've done different studies on uh how much of a face does the brain need in order to recognize it as a face uh-huh. and then how much of how many how much features does that face need to have added to it how many features does that face need to have be uh, okay wow what's the minimum what's the minimum uh, number of features that a face needs in order to be identified as a specific person yeah it's um, kind of like if you draw someone without eyebrows it's very common like a stick figure without eyebrows but you can immediately recognize that that's not a real person you know it's like yes it's a person but it's not a real person until they have eyebrows eyebrow. uh, you know that's a big deal they're very important, they're very important. i read somewhere something that so I, I get along very well with babies like they always seem to smile at me or whatever that stopped happening to me recently and i don't know what's going oh. on it must be because your face is shrinking so i heard that babies <laughs> 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 it's horrified. Oh, like babies, so yeah, matter of fact, yeah. Matt. Yeah, well, clearly your face is shrinking. Like sure, respond like to eyes being far apart. Eyes being far apart is a very like happy familial um, trait. And so, the farther apart your eyes are, the happier you seem. I guess it's probably one of those like penis size things where like it gets better to a certain degree, and then you know it doesn't. But <laughs> come on. Uh, <laughs> but but the farther apart your what, eyes how, are. What about the eyes the, on your penis? My penis does have eyes is that a way I feel like I... we need a special I feel like there's for a that there's <laughs> a horror film <laughs> <laughs> the hills have eyes um but the farther apart your eyes are the like happier you seem or the the the, the nicer the sweeter or something so the, there's something where like innately babies respond to that dimension of a face that's what I, I, babies babies used to love me like babies and small kids used to love me and recently I don't know what's happened but like in the last few years I've smiled at babies and they've not been they into it they don't, they don't like it wow they've not my and, you're, fa- and you're usually so empathetic I mean your understanding of lesbians and their happiness <laughs> yeah. the babies I stare this, at the babies and, they, and I explain my views on <laughs> female homosexuality and my favourable co- and <laughs> my general favourable attitude towards them within the adult industry 
Nothing. Babies don't have it. Nothing. It's interesting though that the eye thing because I heard like a layman's version of that same finding. Uh, the, the cartoonist Bill Plimpton. Do you guys know him? He's yes. Super. Fun. You've definitely seen stuff he's done. Yeah. Um, he did. Uh, I married a strange person. Um, he did a series of shorts that were on MTV in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. He did those ads. For, anyway, great uh, animator who does. He he's animated multiple movies entirely himself. He draws every frame. Uh, he was giving a, a talk when he was doing one of them called Hair High, where there's this character that's a school mascot that goes crazy. And he's talking about the character design of the face, and he decided to have the mascot be wall-eyed because he just said, well, it's just one of those comedy rules, like wall-eyed is funnier than cross-eyed. And it's it just, wall-eyed. Your, 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 your eyes going out to like your pupils at the outside of your eyes. And it is way funnier. I just watched this movie, Monsters vs. Aliens. Have you seen that? And the giant moth creature, who otherwise would be kind of terrifying, is completely wall-eyed, so he's just rendered, like, silly and funny. <laughs> like, yeah, cross-eyed's not funny. Wall-eyed's hilarious. I can make myself go wall-eyed. So you can? I, yeah, well, hang on, I'm sure I Because I used to be able to go cross-eyed, like, easily. I can go yeah. I can do, go full cross-eyed, and I can do, like, a half cross-eyed like that. Because I had a yeah, squint that, as a kid. Wow. Um, hang on, I wonder how... I think it's hard to make yourself go wall-eyed. That's really tough. <laughs> no, you're well, just, that looks you're super just looking creepy. around the room right now. <laughs> Is it, am I doing it? No, no it's, not. it's not doing it. I'm going to have to work on that now. I yeah. have to like, follow, like, follow my... Yeah. And it also, I mean, like Marty Feldman, right? That's uh, probably part of what made him funny as a character actor, like his disability. What was that condition called again? I'm looking it up now. Does anybody here know who Marty Feldman is? From uh, Young Frankenstein? Yeah, 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 no, yeah. I know, I know who might have. Is that was. Igor and Young Frankenstein? No. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, then I know exactly. Who and he is. suffered from. Um, I think Wikipedia it... just says misaligned eyes, but I know that. Oh, Graves' disease. Graves' disease. But yeah, so he was wall-eyed, and that's pretty funny. Except that it's not. Come on, it's a disability. I know, but um, anyhow, so babies uh, like far apart eyes. Yeah. Maybe it's just because is it because they 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 would be. Would there be an evolutionary reason where that would mean someone is more fully grown, therefore like, would they maybe just, can trust Would they them? think those two eyes are nipples and feel comforted? <laughs> Always got to bring it back to the lesbians, don't you? Straight women have nipples too, Andy. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is a valid point. Thank you. <laughs> that is and true. probably evolutionary more likely to have children. Yeah. So, you That's know. That's true also. Um, um, anyhow, so we, did, we never finished the story about the rewiring of the brain, but um, the study out of UCLA, um, they did a study with rats showing that the rodents were able to learn new tasks even after damage to the hippocampus. And while the rats needed more training than they would have normally, they nonetheless learned from their experiences. And um, Dr. Fancelo, a professor of psychology and a member of the UCLA Brain Research Institute, said, I expect that the brain probably has to be trained through experience. In this case, we gave animals a problem to solve. And after discovering the rats could, in fact, learn to solve problems, um, Zelikowski, a graduate student in Fancelow's laboratory, traveled to Australia, where she worked with Vissel to analyze the anatomy of the changes that had taken place in the rats' brains, and their analysis identified significant functional changes in two specific regions of the prefrontal cortex. And they said that, interestingly, previous studies had shown that these prefrontal cortex regions also laid up in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, suggesting that similar compensatory circuits develop in people. And while it's probable that the brain of Alzheimer's sufferers are also compensating for damage, this discovery has significant potential for extending that compensation and improving the lives of many. Nice. So that's good. I think we can all agree. Another chocolate, another one for science. Let's put that as Maybe good. science haters. Let's put that in the good column. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, do we have time for one more story? Is it an evil science story? It's, well, this is actually, oh. this is a, yeah, slightly scary. It's, this is um, 
a good discovery about a bad thing. Okay. Um, I think if we have time for a, fit another quick. Actually, we had um, a bad science story because the Kepler uh, telescope is not functioning. We did. That's yeah, a that's or the potential. Bad one. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, here's another uh, scary thing. It turns out that malaria parasites. We, we know, like mala- malaria itself isn't caused by by the mosquitoes. It's carried by the mosquitoes and put mm-hmm. into humans um, with regularly fatal consequences. But it seems that um, the malaria parasites themselves give mosquitoes a keener sense of smell and make them up to three times more likely to f- find and bite humans. Specifically humans, not just any other... Um, I don't know. I don't know. This, study, I, this study seems to have only been done with human scent. Yeah. But I presume if it improves the sense of smell in general. Um, blood is blood. I just didn't know if malaria only... Um, I don't know much about the disease, if, if animals can get it also besides just mosquitoes and humans, or if there's some kind of relationship I, between those two only. Or, that I do not know. Yeah. Um... Uh, any listeners, if you know, write write on in probably science at Gmail or tweet us at probably science. Um, but um, it says this this study was done uh, uh, by James Logan from the London School of Tropical uh, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, we know that mosquitoes. We know already that mosquitoes bite more often when they're infected. Uh, so to quantify the effect and try to work out its cause, Logan and his colleagues infected some lab-grown mosquitoes. Uh, with the uh, plasmodium parasites while leaving others uninfected. They then tested how both groups were attracted to human smells. Mosquitoes are particularly attracted to foot odors. I didn't know that. Mm. So Logan's Wash team... Feet. Apparently so. Or, I mean, whenever I'm in a mosquito-covered region, I sleep wearing uh, flippers, like swimming flippers. Uh, so it makes it hilarious to go to bed. Um, they are particularly attracted to foot odors, so Logan's team used... Nylon stockings containing the volatile chemicals produced by our feet. Over a period of three minutes, plasmodium-infected mosquitoes landed and attempted to bite the stockings around 15 times on average. By contrast, the uninfected mosquitoes attempted to bite only around five times on average during that time. Uh, Logan Logan suspects that the plasmodium parasite hones the mosquito's ability to smell. The parasite is able to manipulate their host's sense of smell to make them super-sensing mosquitoes. If this phenomenon occurs under natural conditions, it could significantly strengthen the effects of malaria transmission. Um, so is there any way to use that to our advantage to prevent the transmission of it? Like, create a strain of it that has... Well, let's uh, say that to probe the link, it says in this article, between plasmodium and the ability to pick up smells, Logan and his colleagues uh, will use microelectrodes to study cells in the mosquito's antennae. We can find out what's going on at the olfactory level and work out which individual cells within the antennae the parasite is changing. Um, there's a bit in the article that tells you how bad mosquitoes... And they're um, probably secreting some molecule, right? That would be stimulating cells in that region. That's my guess. Can we just get Knowing nothing about the story whatsoever, really that would be... A bad case of athlete's foot and just, like, stick them in a malarial region just and buried. hope that it just, like, attracts all of them. They'll suck it away from everybody else if their feet are bad enough. Just yeah, send just, over like, the all of the malaria yeah. mosquitoes. Are the, I mean, isn't there a way to... You know, if if they're more attracted to targets, to then do like a pie put a piper. big target well, it, there. It does yeah. exactly yeah. bring all the rats in, <laughs> and then have have it, someone with those super smelly feet just march them out of well, the region. Well, it does seem a bit like that is what they <laughs> could the work on. That does seem like um, I didn't realize how many people like I knew mosquito uh, malaria was extraordinarily bad, but it killed, apparently every year there are over two hundred million human cases of malaria what? and over seven hundred and seventy thousand deaths. Um, a be, year, like, which is ridiculous. Why haven't we found a 
I don't know. Well, I, I sort of thought malaria whenever there's one a of those cure. things that but have it's, been it's relegated to. It's not just to. that. It's also yeah, like it those regions that, you know, there's many ma- malarial cases are ones that you don't necessarily have access to modern medicine. That's like true. a lot of those deaths yes, are because there's true. no treatment And also given. things that um, the mosquitoes themselves thrive in standing water mm-hmm. in sort of swampy Human areas in, in place. Yeah. yeah. And in places where that aren't necessarily as built up or where there's, you know, a, a can full of standing water can be a home for a new spawn of mosquito eggs. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of thing that tends to exist in I mean, there's like more pr- deprived projects regions. though, where they're like breeding mosquitoes that are resistant to malaria to compete for resources yeah and then you know but then like okay that's really cool i have that in the lab i have a mosquito that cannot transmit malaria that's awesome now what do i do well i guess i'm just gonna go release it into the wild and hope that it out competes via breeding with the mosquitoes and then now you've created a super mosquito that's more technically fit (laughs) than other mosquitoes which it's resistant to malaria but you have no idea what the potential for other things are and what government in the world is gonna be like yeah yeah Yeah. come on send us your super super mosquitoes yeah Yeah, send us your well there's definitely been mistakes that have happened in the past where they've tried to do various things like we'll release a new a new species of this that'll kill this that'll eat yeah yeah. like people are afraid of genetically modified food that are more resistant to parasites and that type of thing right like I imagine we're like don't worry about it. We're just gonna release Superman the mosquito. A bunch of mosquitoes. They're totally fine. We made them in the lab. We're confident. I mean, it does seem no. yeah, with this study, if they know more about exactly what mechanism it is and exactly what it is that the malaria infected mosquitoes go for above and beyond the non infected ones, uh, it does say in this, and it makes sense that they would be able to develop a lure that would specifically target the malaria infected mosquitoes. So you then have a bait for a mosquito trap that. Ha- that prefers that is a yeah. that targets the malaria infected mosquitoes more than the non malaria infected ones, right? Uh, which is an extremely valuable thing to be able to do if you can get the malaria infected mosquitoes to make a mad dash for your trap. Yeah, just make a trap that smells like super horrible feet. Yeah, and then that's all you have to do. Then without then... necessarily going for Alex's plan of actually finding someone with bearing a human in the ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't proposing, you know. I think a, that was a, a pretty. Sacrifice. I think that was a proposal. I think um, it was. What did you burying them in the ground, like feet up? Like, yeah. Was, oh, okay, yeah, that's not a bad I idea. I mean, if we do that, they're probably already, hopefully, dead. So we're yeah. just, we're really just subjecting their feet yeah. to a bunch of. Let's like hope that human, person yeah. is dead. Let's, yeah. let's all hope. But, for like that. a human bug zapper. Just uh, if you're having a backyard party, you just have mm-hmm. a cadaver buried with feet it's like in the movie like, Wreck-It Ralph when they get all the bad guys to go into the game have you guys seen Wreck-It yes, Ralph yes oh, it's the best yeah too. yeah it, oh it's such a good movie and you know you get all the bugs to go to the light just get all the mosquitoes to go oh to yeah the I feet. forgot that was the way they, yeah. yeah spoiler alert I haven't, I haven't seen, seen the film yet and you've just ruined it for me a long long time it was so good it's, it's really a good movie I don't think yeah. you're, I don't you think you're legit in the 90s it was oh. I don't think you can legitimately call spoiler though on a on a film that's been out for over a year I've had a fair amount of opportunities to see it I spoiled Oblivion, I think, didn't I, on this podcast? I don't know. Just by telling what it was. Have you seen that? Yet? No, but no. I'm not going to, okay. so go ahead. No, no, no. Spoil again. No, no, I'm not going to spoil it again. I don't know. <laughs> I am excited to see Star Trek this weekend. I'm not even a Trekkie, but everyone says dun, it's the best. Dun, dun, dun. It was okay. Alex is a Trekkie. Just okay. It wasn't my favorite, but I still have time to think. I mean, I have to sit on it, you know? It was a lot to take in the okay. first night, so. Better or worse than the last one, though? I preferred the last one, oh, but... No. Um, this one was still it was still great it was still wonderful um, and plus I again I have to sit on it you know see it a couple yeah, more yeah. times 
So it was a pretty clever get out of jail free card with the like parallel universe thing in the first oh, one. Oh yeah. So now when they really play it out, you'll see in the second one. Yeah. Anyhow. Anyways. Um, usually at the end of the show we ask our comedian guests if they have any shows coming up do you guys have any dissertations you're defending <laughs> watch or something well if you want to fall asleep very easily are those open to the public though usually when you go and defend a... they are well mine is yeah that you give like a presentation a powerpoint presentation uh-huh. of your research and that's open to the public and then they ask and we can everybody... go along and heckle yeah heckling sure Sure, sure. But can we actually fire questions at you to while you're defending your PhD? Not if you want to stay friends. (laughs) We'll see. Mm. Yeah, then they ask everybody to leave, and then your committee asks you questions and discuss any additional work that they want you to do before you pack up and leave. And then usually they say, "Congratulations, doctor." Are they all wearing like robes and hoods and things? Like I've never seen. In England, they are. (laughs) Are they really? You dress up for your thesis defense. You know, here it's a basic uniform of white socks, Tiva sandals, cargo shorts, (laughs) buttoned-up collared shirt in some type of plaid situation. Short sleeve. Short sleeve. Yeah, that's that's pretty much standard. Short sleeve button down. Yeah. Cool. Nice. So then you're both gonna finish up this this summer, and then. Well, for me, it's probably the fall. fall. Okay. Yeah, and before the end of the calendar year. Yeah, nice. Say that. Well, and is I'd there any place that um, that the uh, PhD movie is being screened now, or is it just available for viewing online? Um, they have lots of screenings usually at universities. Yeah, um, we'll screen it. Um, not really p- like op- places that would be open to a public. Like definitely like not in theaters or something like yeah, that. Yeah. But it's available online. Yeah, online, and also yeah. you can. I recommend you look up their videos, their respective. The TED Talks and what was the what was the URL for the uh, uh, PhD it? tours is the is a little web series it's documentary uh, style interviewing grad students about their work and, and then, actually the next episode to be released I'm hosting not yeah. even Alex it's about tap dancing because apparently you can get a PhD in tap dancing oh, really? which I did not know I, my, awesome. my whole life could have you wasted taken a wasted <laughs> years on neuroscience you moron but yeah so you can see a professionally trained modern dancer attempting to learn how to tap dance for the first time and basically embarrassing herself in public and on the internet that's, nice. awesome. that's great so check that out and, so, and your videos as well crystal yeah i mean i'm i appear as a guest on alex's show frequently mm-hmm. so and crystal is host of a podcast called the audio feed which previews current events of science and it's an experimental well. medium <laughs> actually it's more like a bunch of people get together in a room and then we decide what we want to do and it's different every time i oh, never know so it's you know markedly different to our highly prepared and highly produced <laughs> <laughs> show yeah, we, we can't all, all be your level of uh well no see because we're sitting in a living room talking into microphones when we record ours we lock ourselves in our producer's closet so to you know because of sound so it's oh, literally really? like i'm sitting next to like all of his like sports coats <laughs> like oh, wow. his pants and stuff <laughs> that seems unnecessary yeah. well she's coming out of the closet that. often you must be a big fan of that mic <laughs> he's so tolerant so yeah. tolerant um so yeah, you, twitter, you can just go to you, they can find you on twitter as well oh yeah poly crystal hd or just search for my name crystal dilworth is an easier one and i'm alex c lockwood it, I think it's just Alex C. Lockwood. Alex Clockwood. <laughs> so find find both of them on Twitter. Look up their videos. Yeah, uh, the videos. Their you, podcast. If, you just, if you just Google PhD TV, you'll find uh, all the stuff you need to do. And, and as, as always, please do uh, write us nice comments and give us nice ratings on iTunes and subscribe if you're not already subscribing. Tell your friends. And one final plug to uh, email us, probablyscience.gmail.com with any comments or questions or clarifications. Tweet us at probablyscience.com. 
Uh, and if you do want to give us some money, we would be extraordinarily grateful. There's a little donate button on probablyscience.com. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening and thank you to both of our guests. Well, yeah. Thank you for having yeah. us. Thanks and thank you to Rachel Porter as well, who said nothing throughout the entire show, but has sat here and helped arrange it and takes photographs. She's our official photographer. She just follows us around and takes pictures. Love She's it. a patron of the, of the sciences, I guess you could say. She's a big fan of them. And you can find Rachel Porter on Twitter at... Porter Files. Porter Files. Porter Files. And see some very cool photogra- yeah, photographs of comedians and scientists and all sorts of people. Yeah. So that's all the plugs. Thank you very that's much it. for listening. Thanks for uh, tuning in again next week. Mm-hmm.